At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today I am speaking with a man who's done something that governments, charities, experts, academics have wanted done but have failed to do. His name is Peter Krikant. And what Peter has done is set up the first safe injecting facility in the UK, which is why he's on the programme and why I am delighted to be talking to you, Peter. Hi, David. Nice to chat to you today. So how did you get into this? Tell us a bit about you and your background and how you set up and why you set up this remarkable initiative. Yeah, well, I suppose my background uh, sort of begins from my own drug use history. You know, I, I started using drugs at a young age. By the age of 17, I was an intravenous heroin user. Um, I spent long periods of time homeless, um, a long period in Birmingham um, using drugs in really sordid, horrible conditions. Um, alleyways, under bridges, abandoned buildings, sharing equipment. You know, that goes back to the old days of when needle exchange was monitored by police and the police would sit and they'd wait on people going in and arrest them on the way out, knowing that they'd have drugs on them. Um, you know, so that, 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 I suppose, is a big part of my story in terms of why I've set up a safe injecting facility, why I've looked at the evidence, why I know these facilities work, you know, across the world, not only to stop things like bloodborne viruses, but also engage people into treatment that may have never engaged previously. So you saw, you saw the bad old days... What really, even before needle exchange was accepted, you actually you've seen it at, the, at its worst in many ways. Yeah, certainly in Scotland, um, when I started uh, injecting, you had to take three needles back to the chemist. There was one pharmacy in the whole of my town um, which uh, supplied clean equipment, and if you didn't take your old equipment back, you didn't get new equipment. It was that simple. Um, I remember sitting in flats in Scotland and people's houses where one needle would literally be shared by maybe seven, eight people. You're quite lucky to be alive. Very lucky to be alive, you know, in terms of the, the drug use that I did do. I'd had high combinations of uh, polydrug use. I was prescribed at one point 100 mils of methadone, 80 milligrams of benzodiazepines, and I was using a lot of crack cocaine and heroin on top of that as well. So, And I presume you've stopped now, have you? Yes, I, I have stopped now, yeah. Fortunately, um, I uh, found that, that not taking drugs, uh, I could do a lot more in my life. And, uh, you know, having not taken drugs, I, I've, I've now got the ability to to do many more things in life that I enjoy doing than, than sitting on, on street corners begging for spare change. 
so the turnaround came from what insights or, or so were you in a treatment program or, or was it was it love or it was all uh, it's all a little bit of uh, of uh, all of that David to be honest um yeah the first sort of initial contact with services was Birmingham Rough Sleepers team who mm-hmm. ha- had a government grant. I was sent away to this residential rehabilitation centre, um, slowly detoxed off of the substances that I was taking at that time. And from that, that point forward, which was just over 20 years ago now, different things have came into my life. Yep, so loves came in there. Um, fatherhoods came in there. I've got two young children now. So um, all these things, I think, uh, enable me to, you know, really pursue harm reduction and uh, pursue what I see as essential in the united kingdom just now Um, but did you switch did you go straight from being a user to being in treatment or or was there a a period of you doing something else yeah i mean there there was periods of time where i was abstinent there was periods of time where i went back to taking drugs again Uh um you know there was periods of time where you know although on the outside looking in my life was fantastic you know i had a good job good flat on the beaches of brighton sunny brighton I would sit in a pub seven nights a week drinking. So I just find that for me, abstinence was a, was a good route to go. I enjoy being abstinent and I enjoy living life without drugs and alcohol. And then how long have you been working in the treatment sector? Um, roughly just over three years now, about three and a half years ago, I started working in the treatment sector. It was after a career change. I was in sales prior to that and I started working in a recovery program. So it was an abstinence-based community recovery program uh-huh. and that was my first real kick towards harm reduction because what I seen within that that community was that people who were really, really distraught through their drug use, really distraught through the amount of drugs that they were taking, um, couldn't be helped, you know, because they would be turned away from the recovery community because they were too chaotic. You know, you can't put the people here at risk, the people who are abstinent and the people who are stable. Um, so I knew that there was a, a massive gap there and harm reduction as well, where that I sort of comes see. in. So they were seen as being a threat to those people who had begun to stabilise? Yes. So people who were in um, what's called recovery communities, which are, are, are quite big now in Scotland, mm-hmm. who had been attending, who were stable on methadone or who were abstinent, those people would be seen to be at risk. So therefore, as an employee, I would often have to turn people away who came along to the recovery looking for support and help because maybe they had used heroin that day or maybe they had used too much methadone that day and they would be seen to be endangering others, yeah. So you saw there was still a need for the the drug users who were having the greatest problems? Certainly, yeah. My last job, um, I was an HIV outreach coordinator for Waverly Care and um, my job was to basically go out onto the streets, test people for HIV because we've got the the largest outbreak ongoing amongst people who inject drugs in Glasgow City Centre. However, that job spurred me into looking at drug consumption rooms and actually setting this drug consumption facility up in Glasgow because I would provide a test for somebody walking away most of the time with a non-reactive result knowing that those people would be at risk again in that same day. They'd be back in an alleyway, back under a bridge, sharing equipment and I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I, I, The organisation itself was great but 
the, the actual job it's, itself was uh, what I see would be a pretty pointless job because we wouldn't have this uh, biggest outbreak of HIV in the city centre of Glasgow if we had a, an officially sanctioned drug consumption facility. Right. Okay. So that's that's why you did what you did. So tell us tell us what you did and how it's going. I went to the Drug Death Summit organised by the Scottish Government on the 27th of February, um, followed very quickly the day after by the UK Summit held in the same venue. So I came away from that Drug Death Summit thinking that drug consumption rooms can't be used as a silver bullet, and that's what the Scottish Government government were actually doing at that point. It was a stick to beat Westminster up with. If only we had a drug consumption room, if only laws were devolved so that we could take control of this situation, then we could solve the drug death crisis. So I came up with this idea. We've been talking about these facilities now in the United Kingdom, some people for many, many years, you know, a lot longer than I've been working in the drug and alcohol field, have been talking about this. Um, But there's no steps forward to actually make this happen. You know, so I thought, let's just go and do it. So what I did is I went to Copenhagen and I visited the people who were involved in the original consumption facility over there. Um, They started in the back of a van. They provided a service for people. They didn't have the legal framework to do so. But in their words, they said they just did it anyway. Mm. And uh, on the back of that visit to Copenhagen, I just came back and said, I'm going to do this. So I went and bought a van. And I uh, kitted it out, took it out into the streets of Glasgow, and I basically challenged the system. Where are we at now? Can you arrest me? It's not happened so far. Now, hang on, before we get to, let's, before we get to that, tell us about what you've got in your van. So inside the van, it was a, a minibus, so it had 17 seats in it. So uh, I, I ripped all the seats out, apart from two seats, which we've kept socially distanced so we've got a good metre or so between the seats Uh we've got two NHS under the bed tables in front of those seats we've got parchment paper which was suggested to me which goes on top of the the tables so Mm -hmm. each time somebody cooks up their heroin or their cocaine we can just simply pull the parchment paper off and put a new piece on top to keep the the tables nice and sterile. We've got uh, disposable seat covers, so every time Mm -hmm. somebody uses a seat, you pull the seat cover off, put a clean seat cover on. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got lots and lots of clean injecting equipment and a range of different sizes for any um, anybody that uses the facility. We've got naloxone on site. And after the first couple of times out, what I found was that there's a very high prevalence of cocaine injecting, powder form cocaine Mm -hmm. injecting in Glasgow. Um, So about 65% of the supervised injections so far have been cocaine on their own. It's uh, it's been quite a a surprise to to see that visually, you know, to to have that observational sort of data. Because although I had seen the studies out there about the the rise in cocaine injecting in Glasgow City Centre and the link to the HIV outbreak, because people can be injecting maybe nine or ten times a day in comparison to maybe between one and three times on heroin, it was a surprise to see it. So what we invested in after the first couple of times of, of being out is also a defibrillator. Um, so we have a defibrillator that we carry on the van. We had some specialist stimulant overdose training organised for the volunteers as well, because most of the overdose that we talk about and most things that we talk about in regards to overdose intervention is around naloxone. Yes. I think we, we need to be very mindful in Glasgow specifically that around 
certainly 65% of the injections that I've personally supervised have been cocaine alone with no heroin mixed in. Have you had any uh, overdoses? Or... We haven't, no. We've had people who have needed to take a seat. We've had people who have needed to take some water and take a seat, so maybe on the verge of an overdose, you know, because obviously being a, a former injecting user myself, I think the, the, the point that you want to get to when you're injecting drugs is you want to get to as close to um, that sort of overdose as you can without actually overdosing, you know. Um, so we've had a few people in those situations where we've where we've said, can you please take a seat for a minute and have some water? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the typical response of a, a stimulant overdose anyway is to, you know, sit somebody down, give them some water, calm them down, mm-hmm. you know, talk quietly, you know, don't arouse any panic um, within them. Do you have any kind of medical professionals in there help us, or is it just you? Well, it's just people who have had training, you know, so there's no medical professionals. I am trained in overdose intervention and prevention, naloxone training, and any volunteers who actually come along to volunteer on the facility need to undertake that training first. So, yes, yeah, so what, what, what we obviously uh, want to do is we want to push for an official facility to be set up so we can have nurses and doctors on, on site um, to provide things like wound care and proper interventions in regards to heroin-assisted treatment, etc. So, Peter, I want to hear about your the first morning. What did you actually do? You, you had it all kitted out. I presume you went and got some... Where'd you get... You got your naloxone. Where'd you get that from? Um, naloxone actually is quite difficult to get. Exactly. Um, <laughs> That's why yes. <laughs> it's, it's not the easiest to get. I mean, we've had a take-home naloxone programme in Scotland for a number of years now. However, despite the fact that during COVID, the Lord Advocate made some changes so that naloxone was seemingly easier to get. It's, in my experience, not became that much uh, more simple to actually get a hold of it. So um, because I am trained in naloxone intervention and I'm actually trained to train other people in naloxone, I am able to go to pharmacies and pick it up. However, my experience leading up to taking the van out was that I was going to the pharmacy to get clean injecting equipment. So I would get go in, I'd get 20 2ml orange, 22ml blue and 21ml injecting equipment mm-hmm. and I'd ask for a naloxone kit and it would be like the Spanish mm-hmm. Inquisition to actually get the naloxone kit and I would only get one. So I had to sort of gradually build up over the, right. the weeks leading up to taking the van out and build up the equipment, build up I the see. naloxone um, yeah, in the morning of actually taking the van out for the first time. What day was that? What was day zero? Day zero would be seven weeks ago this Friday. So um, we're now into week seven now. So you drive out, you drive out, and then where did you go? The first time I went out, I went really public. Oh. Yes, I went really public. I uh, parked outside the NCP car park, outside some shops. The plan was always for it to be public. You know, the the BBC covered the the van going out for the first time and the Daily Record covered the van being out for the first time. They got sort of the exclusive on it um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously BBC has multiple channels. So we made it really public the first time and the second time. And that was all part of the bigger picture. Make it public, allow the press along, get some traction. So you opened the back door and what did you do? Have you painted it? 
I haven't seen a picture of it. How did people know you were there? Or, or, or did you tell people you, the users were getting ready to, for you to turn up with it? I created some uh, little leaflets ah. and I went out into Glasgow City Centre and I let people know. Um, obviously having a relationships with a lot of people who are in Glasgow already, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, having worked in the city centre of Glasgow and knowing a lot of the people who use drugs in the city centre, mm-hmm. it was pretty easy to get people to come along. Initially, the first couple of times when all the press were there and the police were sitting monitoring the van, people weren't going to come and use in the van. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. But people came along, they visited, they were, you know, a little bit fascinated, I suppose, or a little bit um, intrigued by what, what I was doing. So they came along, they used the needle exchange, they took some clean mm-hmm. equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, they, some of them spoke to the press, obviously, you know, non-identified, um, so their faces were blurred, etc. Um, you know, the press were interested to know if they would actually use a facility, if a facility was available to them. We've obviously progressed now um, a lot further. We're now in a, a place that's less public. So we're sitting in an alleyway where mm-hmm. there's a lot of public injecting. There's no police monitoring the van any, anymore. So that's now uh, where people are actually using the facility. Oh, I see. So you you go to the same place each time. Everyone knows where you're going to be so they can yeah. gravitate there when they need to. I see. Okay. Yeah. And um, what has the response of the police been? I mean, presumably they're pleased that, that, you know, that you're helping out people with serious problems, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's in some ways that's great, but it's also some, some ways it's, it's a real frustration because the police that are coming to uh, see us on a, a weekly basis, um, who are visiting the van on a weekly basis, they normally come along in the morning when we're setting the van up. Because we, we have to set things up in the morning, so they come along, we have a little chat. Um, the sergeant last week, we chatted for five, ten minutes about fishing. And then we moved on to, if you need anything, just uh, give us a call. We're here if you need us. And this is the community police officers in Glasgow mm-hmm. City Centre. There's been some really interesting conversations about, um, on a private level, about how they support what, what I'm doing, how they support an official uh, an officially sanctioned consumption facility being set up in the city centre. However, if you go and ask the Assistant Chief Constable or the Chief Constable of Police Scotland for a statement, the statement will be very much along the lines of this is against the law and anybody running such a facility will be breaking a range of laws. However, the police have not intervened after seven weeks. So my take is there's no illegal activity going on apart from the activity of the individual using the drugs. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. And of course, it would be completely pointless for the police to intervene at that level, wouldn't it? Well, that's, I mean, it's... That's kind of common, a common sense. And, and the fact you're having these conversations with the police and you realise that the policeman on the beat really is sympathetic to what you're doing and, and understands that you can't convict your way out of a drug problem in a place like Glasgow. It just won't work at all. You know, it's been not all been plain sailing, has it? I think you've had some 
some challenges? Yeah, that's right, David. The, the, the first insurance policy for the van was cancelled. The brokers for the insurance company were actually contacted by the police authority and they therefore gave me a seven day notice period on the insurance. Rather than waiting for that seven days to expire, what I was able to do is actually cancel the insurance policy myself. And then I was able to reinsure it without having to declare a cancelled insurance policy. No black marks against you then in terms of your ability to pay your insurance. That's good. And you found another insurance company that's been accepting ever since? I have, and the, the other insurance company is a specialised insurance company, so they do mm-hmm. specialise in business insurance, so I've got fully comprehensive business insurance, and I've got insurance which allows me to transport goods, but not for the sale of goods. Mm-hmm. So obviously I'm transporting goods, but not for sale. I'm transporting goods to be used for free by public injecting users. So um, the insurance is all sorted out now. There's not been any further attempts by anybody to contact the insurance company. And everything seems to be fine with that now. Well, that's uh, that's another great success. So so how, how many people have you had through in the seven weeks? Have you been keeping count? We have, yes. So, as I say, the first two weeks were pretty much a write-off. We did, we only did needle exchange in the first two weeks. The four weeks following that, we've supervised 33 injections so far. Presumably some people people come back each day, do they? they you become your most your friends, I guess. Yes, yeah. A couple of people have uh, used the van on... Um, three or four occasions now um we don't record i don't record individuals i just record um you know the the amount of visits and supervised injections i'm also recording the substance that's being injected Mm -hmm. Um, i think primarily because we need to know how to respond in an overdose situation but also it's good to understand you know in terms of the data that we're seeing observationally you know there's lots of studies out there you'll know this in terms of looking at qualitative and quantitative data um, but observational data where we're actually seeing what's being used in this scenario is it's a first in the united kingdom no absolutely and and you're a total pioneer and it's uh... (laughs) It's, it's very impressive that you've had the courage to do that. I mean, uh, obviously, you've got supporters, you've got people who come and help you, but how are you managing to fund this? Well, that's a, that was another challenge, David. You know, we had the police authority contact an insurer, but we also initially set up a, a funding page through Crowdfunder. Um, over £2,000 was donated into that page very quickly. However, that page was closed down before any of those funds were extracted. So all the funds were returned to the people who donated that money. So you mean the, the, the crowdfunder was pressured to close it down? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, oh. yeah. the crowdfunder was pressured to close it down. And they sent me a, le- uh, a letter and also an email saying that the, the page would be closed down um, due to their terms and conditions. So that was a real challenge, David, you know, a real, real challenge because a lot of people donated money, but getting people to redonate after having the money returned to them was a challenge. I had to use my, my own personal um, bank account. Oh, so you've under underwritten this. It's a courageous thing to have done. To actually use your own money to do this. Yes, and uh, it's not just my money; it's 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 my family's money. You know, like obviously, um, 
I'm out of work at the moment, um, you know, because of the conflict of interest with my previous employer. Um, when I said that I was going to start an unsanctioned uh, drug consumption facility, despite the fact that they support a drug consumption facility, we had to part ways. It wasn't my choice to do that. However, I felt it easier at the time to walk away from it, given the, the fact that my length of employment wasn't that long. I didn't feel that there was a, a case that I could fight for to stay within that, that job at the time. Mm-hmm. So. Well, this could be your life's work now. I mean, uh, what's your plan? How are we going to roll this out? Because everyone can't go to Glasgow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we're a rather, rather welcoming city. So, you are. You are. So, uh, yeah, people are more than welcome to come up. But, I mean, the plan now really is to get multiple sites up and running. So we've purchased two gazebos. Those are strong, sturdy gazebos. We're looking at the experiences of places like Vancouver and uh, British Columbia, Canada, you know, who have went out and set up sites similar within gazebos. So it's very much a case of let's get multiple sites up and running. Let's push the boundaries further. You know, a gazebo doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't have an insurance policy that you have to worry about. Nobody has to drive it. <laughs> I see. But you think it would still not be possible to get a building is what you're saying at present there's just still too much uncertainty too much hostility to get a building well i think what we we have to do is we have to look at the uk government for that um at the moment with the uk government's wholesale rejection of the scottish common affairs select committee recommendations i think we we have to face a reality that at least for the next four years, there's not going to be any major changes to drug policy within the United Kingdom. You know, Tommy Shepard introduced a 10-minute members bill um, just last week, which is a, was a fantastic 10-minute speech. But let's get that right, David. Me and you and anybody who knows anything about the way that the system works, is it's not going to become an act of law. A private members bill simply in reality, doesn't become an act of law. So the UK government's stance is we're not going to change this. This is not something that's going to happen. So in Scotland, we, and I hate to leave England and Wales behind, but in Scotland, we have to push for constitutional change in Scotland um, because the Lord Advocate can make the changes that's needed to set up an official facility in a building that can be used by the 500 or so public injectors in Glasgow City Centre that can be staffed by nurses and doctors, that can have add-on services for drug treatment, for heroin-assisted treatment, for uh, methadone and house and health and welfare services, wound care, all the things that you know would support people in a healthier lifestyle. And the Lord Advocate could do that. Presidents have been set with sex work in Scotland in the past, and policing and crime is fully devolved. Health is fully devolved. I've argued for a long time. You're exactly right. I, I think Scotland could do it, and I, I still don't understand why they don't. But the thing is, I suspect they're a bit frightened. Um, I think your example of of just doing it and, and actually doing what's right, so uh, hope maybe that'll shame them into uh, into acting. Because I'm absolutely certain that. If Scotland did it, British, what could we do? We're not hardly going to send an army across the border, are we, to close down an injecting room? I mean, that would be absurd. <laughs> send the tanks in. Send the tanks, that's right. We're not going to do that. We haven't got any tanks left anyway, I don't think. Um, but I want, to, I, I want to talk to you a bit more about that. Why do you think people are so resistant to, to something that not only is self-evident from 
what you've done a, a good thing. Um, but also has been shown to be so effective in countries like Denmark and British Columbia, Vancouver. You know, is it just ignorance or is it prejudice? Well, what's going on, do you think? That's a really difficult question to answer, but I think in my opinion, we still have this mindset where drugs are bad, drugs are wrong. And, um, you know, that's certainly lingered around society for a long time now. And we also have... Well, even even when um, the second in command of the country was famous for his cocaine habit. Yes, exactly. Mr Gove, it clearly doesn't disrupt your ability to get on in politics using drugs, does it? Why should people be so against uh, other people using drugs? Well, I mean, you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, you know. It's, it's OK for uh, certain parts of society, I suppose, to use drugs, but other parts of society, it's, it's wrong. I would say that it's not that people are uneducated, but I do think there's a lot of people uneducated in this specific topic. Mm. And they, they think that drug consumption facilities safer injecting facilities is about condoning drug use and about normalising drug use and you just need to spend some time with any homeless drug user in Glasgow to know that there's nothing there's no normalisation about about that, there's no glamour about it, it's not about normalising it, it's about saying that you are going to be doing this and we know that people are doing it, you can walk down any alleyway in Glasgow, you can walk along the River Clyde and see thousands upon thousands of discarded needles everywhere, you know, so people are doing it, it's about saying rather than do it in this alleyway, if you do it in this safe environment, we can not only keep people alive and stopping bloodborne viruses, but we can also potentially support people into heroin-assisted treatment and methadone programmes where they can go out and be employable and get jobs and, and pay back into society, you know, where they, they just can't at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, I, have to, I was in Vancouver, well, wow, it's 10 years ago now, and they've converted a, a cinema, and I think they had like 16 injecting counters, you know, with the, with the um, mirrors behind them. It was impressive how, you know, basically anyone needed could get in there. But but also the support rooms beyond it, you know, the fact that people get food and, and if they wanted, yeah. they could they could get occupational therapy, they could get social. You know, there was an opportunity for people to, to re-engage with people, not just stay safe from their injecting. And I just thought, wow, this is just makes so much sense. Um, you know, and it's, um, it's really unfortunate that sense and drugs and... British governments in the last few decades just don't go together at all, do they? They, they don't. And that's my, my experience as well. My experience when I went to Copenhagen as I uh, spent three days over there, it wasn't just about seeing the, the, the people who started the civil disobedience in Copenhagen and seeing the van that they used. It was also about getting a feel for what was happening in and around the consumption facilities for me because I was still, you know, on the edge whether I wanted to go ahead and do this. You know, I've oh. I made a, a ma massive sacrifice, you know, in terms of my own life to do this, my own employment at the moment. Um, so I wanted to see what's the impact for society. So I spent time around the consumption facility. And what I found with H17 in, in Copenhagen is that they've got a restaurant on one side of the consumption facility and a cafe on the other side of the consumption facility. And I spent time eating and drinking in those establishments, speaking to the people that work in there, and just visually seeing the people that were using 
those places, you know, those restaurants and those coffee shops that are, are right next to the facility. And the, the sorts of conversations that I was having were so enlightening. You know, people were telling me that it's the best thing that's happened in Copenhagen. You know, the, their businesses are thriving because of the consumption facility, because previous to that being there, there was just needles everywhere people were using on the street. Absolutely. People were scared to go there. And now they now they realise, you know, it's... Uh... They're human beings, actually. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? You know, I think that's part of the reason why we like to punish and, and, and create fear around drug users, because it's convenient. It's a convenient political tool to have someone else out there that you can scare, you know, scare people and you can say you're protecting them from them. It's all about politics, and so little of it is about health. And, it, you know, and it's, we as a country, because, you know, we've always vested our drug laws in, in, in basically in policing in the Home Office, whereas most countries at least can see that drugs have got something to do with health and, and usually their health authorities like in Denmark uh, look after the, the drug users. Yeah. So how can we help you? How can we facilitate what you're doing? Well, you've already you've already said it, David. Everybody can just come up to Glasgow and, and help set up multiple um, safe consumption facilities. Um, but on a, on a practical level, obviously funding is important. We have got ongoing costs. We've got generators that we need to buy for the gazebo sites coming into the winter time when the clocks change and it's the dark nights people will need light they will need heat so we're going to buy power battery power generators which are going to cost a few hundred pounds each you know there's obviously insurance and, and diesel costs and ongoing running costs we're trying to cover volunteer expenses as well so any any volunteers that may travel from outside Glasgow will cover the, those expenses for them um, and I think one of the most important things is the public support you know so get on social media get on Twitter you know get on um, Instagram you know support safe consumption in Glasgow if we support it throughout the United Kingdom and we push it for it to happen in Glasgow I think if we get an officially sanctioned site even if it's under the pretense that it's to be monitored and evaluated you know it will not be long until we get one in Birmingham you know my public injecting experience most of that comes from Birmingham I went back to Birmingham last year and I visited some of those sites and they're exactly the same as what they were 20 years ago nothing's moved forward no progress at all no progress you know and like you say other countries now are seeing this being treated as a health problem we like to say that in the united kingdom and the scottish government really likes to say that but now that we've got a dcr because we have got one now in glasgow the scottish government are not talking about it anymore six months ago it was a big stick to beat westminster up with if only we had a drug consumption facility everything would be great you know, now they're not talking about it anymore other than standardised statements about this not having a legal framework at the moment. But are you getting any political push? Are, are politicians attacking you? Or, I mean, have you won that argument, the public argument? I think the public argument's being won. Slowly but surely, the public are seeing how beneficial these, these sites are. There's been some support from the SNP MPs so mm -hmm. Alison Thielis has came out and visited the van and seen what we do on the consumption facility. Ronnie Cowens came out and visited the van. The Vice done a great article with a video that, that Ronnie Cowan did while he was out visiting. Um, the frustrating part is that SNP MSPs are not getting on board mm -hmm. with this. You know, I'd like to see some of the Scottish 
SNP MPs come out. They voted for decriminalisation at their conference in Aberdeen recently. Yeah. And I'd like to see the Scottish government, because ultimately this change needs to come in Scotland now. The Lord Advocate is appointed by the Scottish government, you know, and ultimately, if the Lord Advocate, you know, hasn't got the ability to step up and make the changes that are needed, maybe the Scottish Government needs to look at who they're appointing. That's a very, very fair point as well. And I was surprised that he asked for the British opinion or the English opinion, uh, knowing yeah. <laughs> that he was going to be told it wasn't right. And he, yeah. and he could have, I guess, appealed. But, you know, it does intrigue me that, that Scotland progressed enormously, seven years you fought a battle to get minimum unit pricing based on health for alcohol. Seven years. Went to the European Court. You went back to court. You know, I don't understand why why drug injections is seen are seen as you know as as less worthy of that kind of intellectual and political effort. But, yeah, and uh, I suppose if you look at um, street benzodiazepines in Scotland, such a big issue. I think they were. Uh, there was 800 deaths out of the 1,187 deaths in 2018 with a benzodiazepine detected in the toxicology reports. You can now get them for around about the unit cost of a unit of alcohol. Mm. You know, you're, you're looking at about 12 pence per tablet now. You know, so Scotland has a huge issue, but it's so much larger than many people understand unless you know the system in Scotland. I mean, organisations in England like Change Grow Live. If you go to Change Grow Live in England, they provide prescribing services. They don't do that here in Scotland. There's another whole tier to jump through. So the third sector organisations, none of them prescribe. You have to go to the third sector organisation and then be assessed by the third sector organisation. And then you have to go further and be assessed again by the NHS because the NHS control all the prescribing. Every time there's a barrier, every extra place that has to be got to every extra interview every extra appointment is just a people will you know just not manage to make it though exactly and that's where a drug consumption facility really comes into play because people who would not manage to make those appointments previously if they were already in a drug consumption facility with a little door on the way out that they could simply walk into and uh, engage with prescribing services like heroin-assisted treatment. I mean, we've got a, a site already earmarked in Scotland. You know, NHS Greater Glasgow, um, Glasgow City Council, they've all approved this. They all want to see this happen. There's a mm. site being sitting there for two years now, which is actually earmarked to provide safe consumption. Well, Peter, if anyone's going to make it happen, you are. It's an absolute delight talking to you and I'm so pleased that you've had the courage to do it and I'm so impressed with what you've achieved and I'm sure the listeners will. So let's just say again where they might go if they want to donate. It's Your website is called safeconsumptionglasgow.com, is that right? Yep, safeconsumptionglasgow.com. And if they go there, there's a GoFund page, is that right? That's right, there's a GoFundMe page. And the donate button on the website takes you straight to the donation page. You can also find contact details for myself in there and how to follow us on uh, different social media channels. Well, I'm sure you'll get a lot more followers than this and uh, they'll all be like me, wishing you the very best, uh, Thank you, Great David. to talk to you, Peter, and do stay in touch. And drug science will be anything you put out, we'll be promoting as well. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Nice to chat to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that was a, a remarkable interview, wasn't it? Yeah. It's rare to come across someone who is so committed that they'll put 
their own career and their own freedom at one level on the line doing something that they know to be right uh, and it's particularly poignant in that of course Peter was a, a drug user for many many years and uh, he knows better than any of us exactly what's needed for those people who do get into that level of drug use particularly those using on the street so uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and if you have and you want to support what he's doing then do go to the website uh, his website, which is called Safe Consumption Glasgow, all one word, dot com. And, uh, and hopefully, if you can find some money to support them, you'll be doing a lot of people a lot of good. Well, I hope you've enjoyed season two of the Drug Science Podcast. In all, we released 26 episodes this season, spanning from mescaline to synthetic opiates, meditation to chemsex, and everything in between. Please leave us a review if you've enjoyed the podcasts. We always read these reviews and are looking forward to some suggestions on how to improve in Season 3. The other way to get in touch is to direct message Drug Science on Twitter. We are about to take a short break to work on some other exciting projects. The podcast will return in 2021, but in the meantime, we're working on recording exclusive insights about the newest and most exciting clinical trials going on right now. We will be hosting expert talks from international thought leaders and our student group will be getting off the ground to lobby draconian university policies. If you want to learn more about these projects, then keep an eye out on the Drug Science website and social media accounts. I'd also like to give a huge thanks to our community members. The Drug Science community members are what keeps us going, and without you, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. To reward our monthly donors, we have some very exciting exclusive content coming up shortly. And we would like to invite each and every donor to the House of Lords Drug Science Summer Reception, assuming the whole COVID thing is over by then. For those of you who are not yet supporting drug science, it's not too late. All you need to do is click through the link at the top of these show notes and you too will be able to join us in London on the 6th of May. We hope all of you will join us for season three of the Drug Science Podcasts. But in the interim, stay safe, trust evidence over politics and follow drug science.